Tell me more about it. This week we talked about a Pinot Noir that was okay, a new type of wine out of Ukraine that uh, had like a really nice fruity smell, but wasn't for me. But you know what I'm talking about. Also, we talked about characterization of libertarians in how they view homelessness and their solutions to homelessness, but the actual solutions we ascribe, and talked about some shenanigans going on in the winemaking industry in Oregon and a legislature legislator who is trying to cause problems. And that's that. Down in Petersburg, everything's fine. All lamb cats is drinking that wine. Drinking that mess is their delight. When the kids are wrong, start singing all night. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Drinking that mess is their delight. When it gets wrong, start fighting all night. Knock Hello, everybody. Welcome again to Tasting Anarchy. This is Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I am joined by Mason Joseph. And uh, we're going to spend the next hour plus talking about uh, our adventures into wine tasting and I guess try to apply that to liberty or just sort of see where the conversation goes as it between mason and i it always kind of goes toward anarchist liberty type topics yes so, uh so do you want to do you, are you sipping on anything tonight or are you skipping wine tonight i am sipping on cold water cold water all right well i got a i got a big gulp of cold water next to me but i am also sipping on um a storyteller um it's storyteller pinot noir out of sonoma county um and i gotta say i it's got really good ratings online, but I just don't think it's that great. It's uh, okay, but it's not really what I expect from a from a Pinot Noir, I guess. Uh-huh. And um, so, it, if I didn't know any better, if somebody had just given this to me, I would probably say it was a Cabernet. And as a Cabernet, uh-huh. it's not a bad cheap Cabernet. Uh, but it okay. When I got it, I wanted a Pinot Noir, like a little bit smoother, a little more, uh, I guess, robust or whatever. And uh, it's just, it's kind of aggressive. It's it's a little bit spicier than I would expect for a Pinot Noir. It's pretty tannic, um, maybe a little acidic. It just is, I don't know, not not what I would expect. And I think maybe just because I expected it to be more like a more mild, smooth Pinot Noir, I took the first sip and was kind of immediately like, ugh. Not, you know, and then that <laughs> sort of, off-putting. yeah, it was a little off-putting. It kind of spoiled the, the bottle for me. But, but yeah, what I'm saying is it's a little more spicy than what I expected. I think I have about one glass left, um, and I'm just going to finish it tonight. It was not the wine, though, that I was expecting to review. And I think in the mm-hmm. last episode, uh, you know, assuming that I don't put any of our backstock in between the last recorded episode and this episode, there was, uh, I was going to do a Ukrainian wine that I got at the Russian store. I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly because Victoria just uh, sat there trying to tell me how to say it correctly. Uh, it's <laughs> it's spelled K-A-G-O-R, but the, the G's, the sound that it makes is kind of like an H sound, so it's kind of like Kahor, but she's telling me that that is not correct, that I'm not saying the H sound correctly. It's more of a deeper throat H sound, um, and I don't hear it. Like, huh? You kind okay. of, I was trying to do it the way that she was doing it, but she's said it was not correct. So well, yep, just, on the mic. Get her <laughs> yeah, well, she, she's, she doesn't want to do that, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, I'm going to just say it the way that an American would read it. Uh, Kagor Terov, 
Visky Shatorf, and I, mm-hmm. I know that's uh, totally incorrect, but I'm going to go ahead and spell it for everybody. So it's K-A-G-O-R is the first word. Second word is T-A-I-R-O-V-S-K-I-Y. And the third word is S-H-T-O-R-F. Okay. So it's a it's difficult to pronounce. It's in a really interesting bottle, and I sent you a picture of it, Mason. I don't know if you recall. Um, it's kind of like a yeah, it's like a square. It's like a uh, not square, I guess, rectangular bottle, and it's got a lot of like uh, like orthodox iconography on it, and it, on it it has like a little uh, crucifix that that is like tied around to the top. Mm-hmm. And it is it was used for sacramental purposes. Uh, this style of wine, it's made out of. Cabernet Sauvignon grapes, uh, which I guess uh, Russian Orthodox Church got some of them from France and brought them over, and so they were making this style of dessert wine using these grapes uh, during um, probably before this. But it, it, on the in this you know the story part of the wine, it says uh, this wine has been a favorite um, for many years, and it was especially a favorite of the last Tsar of Russia, Nicholas II, um, who was. Reigned from 1868 to 1917, and then obviously was killed by the communists. Yeah, wait, um, did you say 1868? 1868 to 1917. I, that seemed way longer. Longer than you thought Tsar Nicholas was? Uh, it was yeah. 1894. Tsar? According to this, it says Tsar Nicholas II reigned 1868 to 1917. That's, he was born in 1868. You're right. Uh, it doesn't say reigned. It just says, it says Tsar Nicholas II, 1868 to 1917. So yeah, so I just assumed. I guess it. I I read it as they were implying that's when his reign was. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, and so this is this particular wine is produced in um, Ukraine. It's in uh, Masandra, Ukraine, mm-hmm. um, or it's it's the or that uh, it's the winery is called Masandra. So not, I'm not really sure. It, the, the information for this particular wine was so sparse and it took me forever just to find like a little bit of a description of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's basically what I found online. But because I didn't like it, I don't want to give a huge amount of my um, tasting notes on it because to me it was just like overwhelmingly sweet. Uh, but Victoria really liked it. And so I kind of I'll read off what she said about it. And she actually had really good palate notes to say. Uh, she took a sip and she, or she smelled it first and she was like, ooh, this is, this smell, this is a really good smell. It smells like, uh, currants. Uh, really, it smells really good. And then she took a sip and she's like, wow, it's like, it's, it's like, you know, like dark black fruits, like blackberry and currant berries. And it's, uh, very gentle and smooth and very soothing to my throat, very warm. Uh, and, and yeah, and then she, you know, she said, uh, the, I would describe it as slow. And, and then I interjected, I said, is it kind of like silky? And she's like, yeah, yeah, silky, not slow. Um, and, uh, then through her other descriptions, I, I took this to mean that she, it was light, a light bodied wine. Um, and then she also said that it's a typical thing that you would have with your girls when you're, when you're like, you get out the wine and you have a sip of wine and then you, you know, talk about your sex life and things like that. Uh, and, 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 and gossip. <laughs> And I said, oh, okay, well, that that sounds good. So anybody who's listening who wants that kind of wine or, uh, you know, would like to get their girlfriend or wife a, a gift, it's a very fruity, very, very sweet wine. It was just too sweet for me. Um, but it's it's interesting, and it's from a different part of the world, and so go ahead and give it a try. So I have a little bit of information on this wine type. Mm-hmm. So according to Wikipedia, Cahor uh, is a Moldovan wine made from Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, its name comes from 
Cahors, France. Conversely, the dominant grape variety in Cahors is Malbec. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Cahors is like a, um, it's like southern, southern central France. Okay. So this, this wine also, just to, I guess, add to that as well, this particular one is 16% alcohol by volume. Which is pretty high for a wine. I mean, not astronomically high, but like just to sort of, uh, sort of counter it. This, the, did I even go through the name and stuff of the Pinot Noir I was having? Um, it broke up so much. I'm not totally sure. Okay. Well, it's called Into the Fog. It's from Sonoma County. Um, the wine is called Storyteller. Oh. Uh, it's, um, but it's 13% alcohol by volume. So, and as we've said many times, uh, wines can be, you know, 1% higher or lower in the United States. I don't know if that applies to imported wines as well, but assuming that this, uh, Ukrainian wine, the Kahor, um, to me, the, it had a very strong alcoholic effervescence, but the way that Victoria described it, it was not nearly as much as like a liquor drink. And I don't drink liquor, so I couldn't really speak to that very much. Um, but if, if you guys like a, a stronger wine, like a dessert wine, I, I would imagine you don't drink in as large quantities as a regular wine, but maybe you do. And it's for after dinner, so, you know. Give it a try. Uh, they do not have on the bottle or on the website that I found a description for give any sort of food recommendations, but I assume it's just after dinner, you're eating dessert, you serve this. Um, and so, you know, check it out. If you have a Russian store near you, go ahead yeah. and pick pick up a bottle. Yeah, I'm interested in uh, trying this out sometime. Yeah, well, you know, come out here to Texas. I know where we can get some. I'm sure you can get some in Virginia, too. I just don't know where. Yeah. All right, so uh, try any... Did you try any wines or anything this week? This... Oh, real quick. Okay. So, uh, buyliquors.com has, like, has the wine. Okay. That's interesting. <laughs> At a liquor. Yeah. That... Well, you know what? It may be that there's some, like, taxing issues with it when it's uh, 16%, so or, like, some, like, classification issues. Because it's not fortified, but I know that fortified wines are sort of sold as liquors mm-hmm. a lot of times, just because they have so much more alcohol in them. Yeah, this is the site that I found by liquors.com. It has a lot of wine on it, so I'm going to set that aside. Look at that later. Okay, so it might it might just be that they just also have that, and they it's just called by liquors. liquors. Well, they, they had spirits, but like most of the stuff was wine. They had a wine club, so mm. okay. let's see. Um, okay. So wine-wise, no, I didn't have uh, I don't think any wine this week. Um, I had several beers on Friday. So um, my wife made a chili mm-hmm. last week. And she needed a porter, so I got Founders Porter. Oh, yes, um, we've had that before. That's a good one. Yeah. It's a standard, pretty chocolatey porter, but it's not like their breakfast out, which is like my go-to beer that isn't like a million percent alcohol. Right. Um, really like that one. But uh, the porter, you know, pretty solid beer, so I had the last three of them on Friday. And then Saturday night, I had um, Dairy Queen, so I was like, today, I'm going to abstain from stuff that I shouldn't be eating necessarily. Right, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't really drink during the week um, all that much uh, because sometimes I'll skip my morning workout and work out at night. Yeah. So I'm like, eh, I'll, I'll just hold off on it. Um, but went to the grocery store because, mm-hmm. you know, when you, I don't know, we go weekly. So yeah. um, went to the discount section and was perusing and they had some, you know, they had a couple of cabs and I was like, you know, I'd like to do a cab, kind of reminisce, but like I really like to get a cab. If I'm going to get a cab, I want to try to get one that you've got too, mm-hmm. um, to you know, reminisce with that um, and kind of bring some solidarity to the show because I was listening to some of the episodes when um, 
since you've left. Right. And, you know, there are times where, like, I can kind of tell, like, I've had too much to drink. <laughs> right. I'm not commenting the way I think I should. And then, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to talk to each other through Skype. Yeah. We, you know, we don't talk on the phone and, like, we text. But, like, you know, they'll text a paragraph. I'll have a couple of responses. And then I'll text a paragraph. You'll have a couple of responses. You know, yeah. we, we communicate a lot, but we don't communicate voice-wise right, unless right. it's in person for 10 years almost. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, this is a, a new medium for us. So I was like, okay, you know, i got to see the adjustment here. And plus, like I said, like my description, just like I can tell you in person a lot better than like on a show. Like right. it, it's easier when you have the line too. Right. So, you know, I was looking at it and I was like, oh, you know, like a cab be fun. And then they had um, like a griege. They had a couple other things, but then they, they had a Malbec. And okay. it was like an Argentinian Malbec. And I was like, you know what? I seem to remember liking Malbecs. And I like to I like to try other stuff. So I'll get this Malbec. So I've got an Argentinian Malbec. Mm-hmm. Um, probably be the wine they do next week. Um, well, for us, chronologically, next week. Right. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, well, yeah, I know I that, like, the last, I think the last episode, episode 22, that, um, didn't you guys get a winking owl Malbec? Your, or your mom got it for you, or you bought it after you had the Syrahs that she brought you, or something like that? Yeah, she had the Syrah that she brought. And then I had a Malbec, um, as the first one of the winking owl. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and no, it was, okay. I, I gotta go to Aldi again and get another one of those. Okay. And try them by side. Okay. All right. Because, <laughs> you know, it, I, we had a Malbec together. And I remember enjoying it. So yeah, well, we we have had a Malbec together, and I can't remember which episode it was. I could I could always go look back and see. But I also remember we had I had one that I got on discount from when remember when Farm Fresh was going out of business. Mm-hmm. Um, I I picked up one there, and I was like, okay, this is okay, but it wasn't spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know if it's because I don't have enough experience with Malbecs, but I always find them kind of hit or miss. Gotcha. And it might it might be that I feel the same way about you know. Pinot Noir, I guess, would be the, my second go-to, and then Cab would be my first go-to. And mm-hmm. as we've experienced with this storyteller, which you know, other people may like it a lot, uh, but it wasn't for me. Um, and I probably have the same thing going on with Cabs. It's just that I drink so much more of them that the bad ones sort of go away, and like the good ones rise to the surface. And since I can only really think of having, you know, three or four, five maybe Molbecks, not by the glass, but you know, by the bottle, that I went and picked out the bottle. Um, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if like the good ones, I've had enough good ones for it to like ride that cream to rise to the top, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the thing is like, I, I, I like to, um, I like to try different things as you yeah. know. Um, so that's where I've been trying to expand my palate. And this is, you know, kind of the classic you and I scenario where we seem to remember liking something. Right. And then kind of going back and going, okay, so was the first one we got just the best one ever? Is this something we actually like? And, or is like the follow up one just trash? It's kind of like uh, yeah. going to Kogan's, that pizza restaurant in, in town. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Where like, yeah, where every single time we go, you, you are infuriated by the service. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I seem to have like just the worst service ever. And, I don't think the pizza is that amazing. Mm. Like it's good, but yeah, you know, I, I I can get a seven dollars Chinello's pizza, which I enjoy a lot. Yeah, and doctored up if I really needed to, and have good service and choose whatever beer I want at home. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. we we so. we've actually recently found a pizza place that we really like here over uh-huh. on. Uh, there's like a section of town called Greenville Avenue, mm-hmm. um, which is 
hipstery kind of, I guess. I'm not really sure how to describe it. There's like a lot of little restaurants over there that are pretty high end, like not fancy high end, but like expensive hippie, like hipster kind of places. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a pizza place in there that is a little bit pricey. It's like 20 bucks for a large pizza, which is kind of expensive. Um, but it's good pizza and it's called, uh, like, I think it's just called Greenville Avenue Pizza Company. Um, and it's, it's good. So we started going there, but kind of on the topic of the Molbeck. Uh, and since you got an Argentinian, I'm curious to know what the Argentinian is because I, as I've recounted to you, but not to the listeners, I have this Wall Street Journal's uh, wine subscription thing. And they sent me 12 bottles of various red wines. And one of the ones they sent me was a Malbec from Argentina. Is it Reta 22? Nope. It's J O P. Just the letter J, then space O P I. So E O P or O P I. Maybe maybe O P I. Yeah, it's from Mendoza. Which, if I recall, the other one that we had was also from Mendoza. Yeah, Mendoza is the big uh, Malbec wine region. Of yeah, the yeah. Okay, yeah. So, but just you know, spoiler alert for the listeners. Uh, for the next several episodes, we'll probably be. I'll probably be at least when it's you know my main review. I'll be reviewing these Wall Street Journal wines, <laughs> which you know if you can get if you can actually get the deal because I don't think it's a special deal. I think it's just a, for the first time you subscribe. It's actually really good. It ends up being about uh, five bucks a bottle, and Fun. yeah, and there are most most of them are between fourteen and twenty dollar bottles. Um, if you went to go get them at like Total Wine, for example, mm. um, and there and none of them are. Uh, I'm not going to say they're not mass produced, but they're one of the things I learned recently from reading is that uh, about 80% of all grapes are divided up between about 10 companies and um, the rest are small companies. So, And one of the things they were saying in this article was that you don't really realize how much like a vineyard will make their own wine, but they also have a large surplus of grapes a lot of times and they sell those to large companies like Barefoot or... Uh, What's the Yellowtail is a big one, I think, um, mm -hmm. or like the Walmart brand one, which apparently has been growing in popularity, or uh, you know maybe even Winking Owl, which I think is actually made. I think we went over that, and I think it's the Barefoot people make yeah, that. Yeah, it's uh, owned by the parent company. Yeah, so uh, so a lot of these wineries, like one of the things they do is they make their own wine, but a lot of times they, they produce so much more grapes than they need for their own wine, and they can't sell enough of their own wine that they sell the grapes to somebody else. Those people blend those grapes, and they make a, you know, kind of a generic wine. Mm -hmm. um, all the ones from the Wall Street Journal is they, they don't want those wines. They want the small, I guess, small batch, so it would be kind of like uh, the craft brew of wine. Yeah. Uh, and you know, a lot of them are pretty inexpensive. Like, uh, you know, like I said, they're between, you know, I think there was one that was like $12, but they're mostly between about 15 and 20. So, uh, I mean, overall between 12 and 20, but you know, you get what I'm saying, listeners and Mason. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it, that's the thing. It's like, um, like if you look at the back before the craft brew res revolution, yeah. how much they, um, like the big three breweries or the big whatever, you know, I forget yeah. the count at the time, right. but how much they dominated wine right. or wine, um, how much they dominated uh, beer making. And right. now, like, you know, their percentage is down, but like beer is kind of down too. Right. So, but you know, it's like how much of the hops did they consume? Or, oh like, yeah. The barley production. Well, that's, and that's like, <laughs> even nowadays, like with all the craft brews and stuff, they keep having, you know, hop shortages and mm -hmm. so people have to kind of like figure out other ways to do it because I'm sure that if you're a hop farmer, you your your number one priority will be to serve to whoever the most reliable is, and the most reliable is going to be you know Budweiser or Coors or whoever is a large company that's been around forever. Exactly, and, and it makes sense. sense. Yeah, but I mean, like you also have to think about like futures contracts 
like, and are there future contracts mm-hmm. for hops? And then, yeah. like, in that, like, how far out are you purchasing? You know, like, if you can consistently produce a hop crop, hop um, harvest, yeah, like, you know, cores knows it, and you're producing what they want. Like, they may sign like a 20 year contract with you. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, <laughs> that's a, a good question. That'd be something to explore, kind of like um, what the excess want. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because you know, that's I. I, I I'm not sure what like the capacity is, but I guess if somebody has a really good year and they just don't have the capacity to process all the grapes, you know, you might as well sell them off, especially if, if you know that you make good grapes. So yeah, exactly. You know you make good grapes and you know that like, um, that like you're going in that, you know, you can produce even with like a, like a bad frost. Right. Yeah. Enough to cover both. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Cause like you, you can produce what you need and what they need and then like pick up small uh, middling contracts. I guess like, middling's not the right word. Um, but like, you know, say, say you're one ton short. Right. Of what, and then like, I'm the guy down the road and it's like, oh, I've got an extra two tons. Yeah. So I'll sell you the extra two tons and you can just F off with a ton, you know? Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure too, like, you know, and this sort of to tie this back to, you know, our normal stuff is what, like, are there advantages? Is there, you know, you know how sometimes there's like that middle ground when it comes to dealing with the government where if you get too big, it's cost negative or cost, it, it's cost prohib- prohibitive for you to expand that much. So you, there's like a hump that you have to get over in order to expand to the size that makes you, uh, cash flow positive or whatever. So, it may you know, when does economies of scale kick in? Yeah, exactly. So it may be that you know, like the winery. You know, uh, Nate has this where he subscribes to a winery's small batch, and they you know, so they'll send him those wine. But I'm sure that they produce more than enough grapes to make their small batch. But is there is there a reason that they don't expand to? I mean, is it a business choice, or is it like if you expand this much, now you're in a different tax level and? or uh, regulation level, and that just makes it more difficult. So you might as well just stay small and make the money by selling the grapes to the big guy. You know? Yeah, and, and that comes down to, like, so how much can you expand? Yeah. You know, like, capacity-wise. Well. So, like, the ferment. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. The physical area, and then, like, how long is that contract that we were talking about? Like, right. Do they have, like, long-term contracts? Those yeah. sort of things. So, I mean, this would yeah, be, I mean, it'd be interesting to look into. Why uh, we need to meet. meet meet a uh, person who owns a winery. Right. Yeah, exactly. But speaking of government intrusion into wineries, we're going to revisit Oregon where hey. yeah, but it's not exactly related to the previous article because I have not found out any more information, but while I was looking into trying to get some more information from that article, I came across one, I guess he's a Oregon representative in the Oregon state legislature, David Gomberg, and he <laughs> is apparently pissed off because he thinks that there's uh, poor labeling laws going on with uh, wines from other regions, and he thinks that Napa Valley is trying to pass off their Pinot Noir as Oregon Pinot Noir from the Willamette Valley. And he's saying, I'm not having any of this. They need to be using 100% Oregon Pinot Noir grapes in order to call it a Oregon Pinot Noir. So it is related to the other article, but not in so much that the uh, Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association is, is pushing for this legislation. But it seems like they have an ally in the state legislature who is irritated that you can use a percentage of grapes from a different state and, and still call your wine Willamette Valley or Oregon Coast or something like that. So if I'm understanding his complaint correctly, 
Mm-hmm. Is he complaining that that um, winemakers in Napa are bringing down some Oregon grapes and then saying, "Oh, this fifteen percent Oregon and eighty five percent California so, wine is Oregon wine." So his complaint is that the that there are a certain number of uh, wines made in the Napa Valley that are partially made with Oregon Pinot Noir grapes. Um, there okay. does, there doesn't seem to be a specific percent, but the way that the bottles are labeled, uh, they are saying that the grapes are sourced from, uh, Willamette Valley or from the Oregon coast. Uh, and which is true. Um, but he doesn't think that it's clear enough that they are a mix of Willamette Valley and Napa Valley or or various other locations in California Pinot Noir. So that's that seems this is a pretty short article. I just thought it was funny that they've got another guy in their legislature complaining about it. Uh, when to me to me it doesn't sound like it's that big of a deal. Um, it doesn't seem deceptive to me if you if you're using. But then again, you and I are not like normal wine snobs. So to us, this is not as I guess not a big deal. It's kind of like uh, it's just sort of like well, I mean, like it, you like it or you don't like it. Where it's from maybe has some impact on it. And, and actually, I guess for you and me, it does have some impact on it because like I look for you know Georgian wines or wines from Ukraine or somewhere like that just because it's interesting. Um, but betw- yeah. between a Napa Valley and a Willamette Valley wine, like eh, like that doesn't matter to me that much. Well, I think like the difference is we're we're wanting to try something exotic. Mm-hmm. And so we are buying stuff from foreign countries for that purpose. Right. Where, and this is one of the things, like, I don't, I don't understand what this guy's going to achieve. So, like, is he just basically trying to, like, ham-handedly close off the Oregon market to California producers because they do some sort of genetic wine testing thing? They'll find out that, like, no, this wasn't produced with 100%. Willamette Valley or Oregon grapes, therefore it can't be said as Oregon wine. It can't be sold in Oregon. Like, what's the plan? It's not. It's not exactly clear to me what. Um, it's not exactly clear to me what his end goal is. Uh, it does seem when you get into the article a little bit, it almost seems like he's after the fines that would be levied against um, the company. That it is one in particular company that's named is called Co- uh, Copper Cane Wine. It's a, mm-hmm. they make, I guess, several different things, but he thinks that they're maliciously labeling it wrong. And this would, uh, per incident, generate $25,000 of revenue for Oregon. I don't know how many incidences this would be. I don't know if that means like every bottle or if it means like every year or something like that. It sort of sounds to me like it's a tax scheme, but mm-hmm. it doesn't go into enough detail in the article to uh, make that abundantly clear but then again it is you know it's an article from a pretty mainstream uh not local but state you know regional newspaper and pretty much everything is going to be like if the their immediate assumption is going to be that the government is in correct or it's in, it's inhabited by you know people who are after the best interests of local businesses um but you know but through my biased eyes when i read through this it to me sounds like a he's trying to make it more difficult for people to use Oregon grapes which I don't think is going to be good for Oregon and then um I guess secondly or b did I say a first I don't know whatever the next <laughs> whatever the next item is uh in the list it seems like he's after these fines mm-hmm. um that doesn't seem super clear to me but just it's a it's a very short article it's like 
you know, half a page on the, with, you know, with pictures on the internet. So you scroll down and it's just a couple paragraphs and it's, and then toward the end they start talking about, you know, these are the fines that they would levy against this company if it was found guilty. So whether he's trying to get those fines and make the laws stronger, um, it's not exactly clear, but it does seem like he thinks that Oregon is being taken advantage of, that people are using the Oregon name when they do not have a right to use it because they're not in Oregon, they're in Napa. But between Napa and the Willamette Valley, like to me, it sounds like to me, Napa is a much more famous, popular name than mm-hmm. Willamette Valley. So, like, who are you fooling? Well, so like my question would be, so like, um, if yeah, I'm trying to think of like back in the day, like when before the first iPhone came out, mm-hmm. if you were an Apple user, like, yeah, you know, you're you're an Apple user, like you had kind of like a special air to you, kind of thing, right. So I wonder if like Napa is overplayed and now it's like the Willamette Valley's the next Napa. The, and yeah, so, that might be. So like to, you know, these, you know, Hawaiian heads or snooty people or something, this is some sort of like a egregious affront to their palate by being tricked or something. I, yeah. I, you know, I don't, I don't I mean, know for sure. Yeah, that could, I mean, that could be, this may be a lot of insider baseball and, and I do get a lot of these articles from, um, a, it's basically a trade a trade news aggregator for wine the wine industry so I you know I click on them this particular one is from the Oregonian which is a, a state a state level newspaper uh, or statewide newspaper um, it but just looking at this dude's smug face in the picture like just makes me like yeah he's a he's a tax hawk he's just trying to get some money and create <laughs> problems for everybody but I also like, I recognize that sometimes I need to check my bias and be like, you know, even though all government action is inherently violent, a lot of these people are just do-gooders. Like they, they think they're doing good stuff and they're just buffoons. But yeah. I, there's also a lot of people who are in these that are power hungry and they're just like, aha, another opportunity for me to get more revenue and increase my clout. Um, so like, well, this is like, would be my question. Like if you're a do-gooder in these fines, like, so how is it not do-gooding to basically create a sticker that has such sticky residue you couldn't get it off? Yeah. And then every bottle that is, like, breaking this rule gets stuck with it when it is for sale. Yeah. It's like the those packages, like, the stickers are crap they've got to put on, like, cigarettes or something like that. And right. And certain states were, like, just to make the product more expensive. Yeah. It's like, well, we can't find you from doing this, so we're going to make you put a sticker on here. So you know, rotted lungs or whatever. Right. Well, you know, and kind of to go to like the free market idea on this, do you you remember when I used to sell action figures online a lot? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of, uh, like 3d printed or like fake action figures, the, that were, that were made in China. They were not, they were not the actual mega house Japanese style of those figures. They were a knockoff that was very, very, very close, but Mm -hmm. not quite the same. (laughs) <laughs> and so what Mega House did is that on in I think two different places on the boxes they would put this sticker that was a like a holographic sticker that had a uh, very sticky residue on it so that if you open the box the sticker would be damaged and if and it was very difficult to peel the sticker off without breaking the sticker. Mm-hmm. And so when I would sell these action figures online if it didn't have the sticker intact and I would have to take pictures of these stickers intact uh Buyers would not pay anywhere near as much. And these were expensive figures. These were $500, $600 figures that people would pay a lot of money for these figures, but they wanted to make sure that it was, that the sticker was intact, that the box had never been opened, and that it had those specific holographic stickers on them because they didn't want to get a Chinese knockoff. They wanted the real deal Japanese mega house figure. And, um, 
I don't. I think this would be a really good market opportunity for a third party like wine certification group to spring up in the Willamette Valley and be like, look, Willamette Wine Growers Association, it's very clear to us that this is important to you that you have some sort of certification or whatever that the wine is 100% Pinot Noir, high quality um, grape from the Willamette Valley. We're, what we're going to do as the Wine Growers Association or whatever is instead of getting the government involved, which is going to cost everybody a lot more money, let's just take up a little crowdfund or whatever. And any wine that is produced in the Willamette Valley can purchase one of our little holographic stickers. We'll put it, once you cork it, we'll put the sticker on for you over the cork so that if the cork is popped, damages the sticker. And you'll know that all of these are official Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs and they haven't been opened or whatever. And, or, or actually it probably doesn't even need to go over the cork and just be on the bottle. And, uh, well, yeah. And then you've got these like little holographic stickers that are like, you know, 100% Oregon Willamette Valley Pinot Noir certified by the, you know, Willamette Valley Wine Growers Association or whatever. Well, Jacob, don't you understand that that would make the bottle harder to recycle and then therefore <laughs> yeah. environmentally friendly? Yeah. Just to let everybody, everybody know, I never recycle any of my bottles. They all go in the trash. Because <laughs> I know that from an economics calculation standpoint, it is a bigger waste of resources to recycle bottles than it is to just throw them in the landfill. And then at some point, there will be a tipping point when it is more cost efficient to recycle them, and then it'll create a lot of jobs for people to go mine trash. I do remember that day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways, that was just, I wanted to just kind of bring that article up because it, again, well, it's, it's government meddling and also it was sort of related to what we spoke about last episode. Well, and here's the thing. I think it ties really, really well into what I uh, oh, yeah. wanted to talk about. Okay. So, you know, we have a concept in our minds, Jacob and I, or at least he may not remember this concept, but I will remind him. Um, called Superior Grapes. And it's yeah. people that we admire and uh, forebears of the anarchist movement, um, people who exist today, you know, Murray Rothbard, Tom Woods, Lou Rockwell, J- I mean, Jason Stapleton, in my mind, for mm-hmm. the most part, is definitely Superior Grape. You know, people that when we don't necessarily know uh, an answer to a topic or we're not really sure how to base a topic, we kind of seek out their work. And so one of the oldest people in the Superior Grapes or furthest back is uh, Lysander Spooner. Yep. So this weekend, I, you know, Jay and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I am a mix of libertarian stuff and true crime. And, you know, when you listen to true crime, especially when you've got a young kid, you know, at a certain point you kind of feel disgusted. It's kind of the reason you don't listen to true crime yeah. at all, Jacob. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't like anything that is like that's real. too – yeah, that's real. Like I, like and, like that. What was that show that they had on Netflix a couple of years ago that everybody was talking about the making of a murderer? And I was just like, yeah. I, I don't want to see some guy get railroaded. Yeah, and and that's like you know, and I can understand that, and I appreciate that fact. Um, but like you know, Dan Carlin doesn't have a new episode out, and uh, right. nothing that's been on Joe Rogan recently has interested me. So. I found, um, I said, I'll put in Mises into the iTunes podcast search because I'm an Apple guy, so I use mm-hmm. iTunes. And uh, I searched for Mises podcast, and as I was scrolling through, one of the things that was available being read was Lysander Spooner's uh, No Treason, which is uh, like the first part of the technical name. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's, I think, well, correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while since I've read it. it no Treason is a is a compilation of three essays. One is No Treason, one is The Constitution, and then the third one is The Constitution of No Authority. Yeah, so 
the way Wikipedia describes it, in which generally for something like this is usually pretty good, okay. you know, accurately. No Treason is a composition of three essays, all written in 1867. Number one and two, the Constitution, and number six, the Constitution of No Authority. Okay. And essays between two and six were ever published under the authorship of Alexander Spooner. Oh, okay. All right. Basically, there are two two texts now that if somebody wants to see my political thinking, I would recommend that they read and or listen to the three essays that make up what we'll call No Treason mm-hmm. and Anatomy of the State. Yeah. Like, I think those... I think Anatomy of the State is like 80 pages. It's pretty short. Yeah. And actually, I, mean, I think No Treason is pretty short, too. No Treason, like, I mean, it was a it's a free podcast on the iTunes podcast set. Yeah. Um, written by, like, the guy who reads it, he gets into it. Okay. And, like, he, like, when he's saying it, like, you can kind of hear the vitriol that I imagine, like, Spooner had when he was writing this. And he was talking about how, like, you know, the Constitution, it doesn't have any authority over you. Like mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, I want us to use the word real, but, um, so it's narrated by a guy named Matt Pritchard, but in the, in the text of it, you know, it, it goes through how just because you vote doesn't mean that you support the constitution because, you know, most de- voting is defensive because you're kind of like, I don't want to get one up by this guy. It goes over like how paying taxes doesn't mean you consent to the constitution and how, you know, you, like, somebody who is elected by secret ballot does not make them your agent. Right. Especially because, like, as you've always said, you know, simple majority, 51%, now 49 people, or 49% of people are just completely disfranchised. Yeah. Like, I picked one guy to be my overlord over another guy because I was afraid of what the other guy would do. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, that's not, yeah, and even that argument is assuming that the guy that the 51% picked, that he will act in their, in the interest that they expect him to act in. Correct. And there's no, there's no accountability. Right. And that's the thing is, like, you know, you, it's very hard to give somebody agency over you. Mm-hmm. And if, like, the Basically, the, the you know the, the famous line from No Treason is basically, at least in my mind, is the line that Caldwell often quoted to us. Yeah. Basically, you know, either the con- and I'm going to paraphrase it because very uh, the wording is very important. Right. But basically, if the Constitution had any authority, it allowed this to occur. If it didn't, it had no power to stop this. Right. Yeah. So, and like I think in you know like Les Anders Spinner is talking about like and is written like just after the civil war like less than two years later yeah and the like just hearing some and like so people are always talking about like revisionist history and stuff like that here's a guy who lived the civil war yeah he was alive when it happened and he's saying these things of like you know just these people decided to murder these people and like how the war was funded by you know like he's like throwing the rothschilds under the bus the entire time which is really funny to me because like i I don't think about the Rothschilds and like it's so different now, but like the how like the North funded the North was enslaved by bankers who caused the government to basically, you know, go to war with the South because mm-hmm. the South basically said either we don't need your money anymore or we don't want your enslavement anymore. But right. what the South was saying doesn't really matter. But like this is why. And like how the yoke of the breaking of the yoke of chattel slavery basically ensured the debt slavery now right. and those other things and it's just one of those things where, like, I don't know how somebody who hears it doesn't immediately go, yep, I'm not voting anymore. And, like, I I get how, like, you know, given time and distance from the, the article, like, I'll probably still vote because I think it's funny to do and, like, write in goofy people and stuff like that because um, I really don't think it matters that I voted. Yeah. But, like, you know, 
you and I have ne- were never big Ron Paul guys when Ron Paul was running. No, I think I think it took us. I, I mean, I liked him, but I, I it took me forever to sort of like not be mad that he was a Republican. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, and me too. Because I was, I think, I, I think it was mostly because, like, at the time, I was still, I was kind of butt hurt about uh, all of the stuff that I had to deal with in high school with the Republicans. Mm-hmm. So I, I was like, well, I don't like Republicans at all. Yeah, and that's the the thing that like kind of shines into my mind and like i think ron paul is a good person yeah but like to hear what lissander spooner is saying about being a congressman and i don't disagree with what lissander spooner is saying and basically saying you know congressmen are criminals Mm -hmm. and it's hard for me to look at ron paul that way right and you know people are like oh ron paul's the exception that like approves the rule or something and you know i think thomas like thomas massey like i don't think thomas massey is necessarily a criminal right but by lysander spooner's arguments which i don't have any rebuttals for like he's a criminal and so well you know that's this is interesting because uh on you know we have some new well sort of new friends Uh, one guy who lives in this area uh from the friends against government podcast recently were was talking about a very similar topic uh when they had sally agaris who's also pretty popular guy on um twitter and also he's got a oh did you hear that one uh, so they actually uh-huh. they talk a lot about that actually and um, and like I I think this is one of the reasons why I never really got into the whole agorist thing when like Mike Lowry did um, uh-huh. like I read Konkin and and I do find Konkin very compelling and stuff but like it almost seems like the it's not even really an argument between the two but like the ANCAP versus voluntarist versus agorist kind of thing is to me an aesthetic sort of like there does seem to be a type of person who is very much drawn to the agorist label and Mm -hmm. and it's and it's a type of person who i'm not really sure how to describe it i'm going to describe it this way is that they don't value comfort as much as i value comfort i guess Uh is that and or they have like uh and this is sort of not specifically agorist but like other types of anarchist libertarians like you know um uh jeffrey tucker for example um is a good one who's I, I really like jeffrey tucker i like a lot of his work and stuff like that but he does have an aesthetic that i find off-putting to some degree and uh, the aesthetic is a celebration of of weirdness and i think this is kind of comes from why and a lot of times i'll describe myself this way is that in a lot of ways i'm very conservative uh-huh. i don't like seeing homeless people i don't like drug addicts like even though i've done a lot of psychedelics and stuff like that i don't I just don't like it. And I don't like it when people ask me for money on the street. And, uh, and like, I saw a meme going around, like, I've got a lot of gay friends. You and I both have some trans friends and some gay friends. And, uh, that it doesn't really bother me what lifestyle they live or whatever. But what really bothers me is the people who are so over the top flamboyant and have like rainbow everything. And there's a meme that goes around about it. And it's like, the one side is, is like gays that I like. And it's like, can be your friend has a normal conversation uh happens to like dick and then like the other side is the first topic of conversation is how much they like dick everything about them is rainbow their hair is rainbow they have rainbow piercings uh they every conversation is closed by i'm gay and you better accept it and like there it's it's a it's an aesthetic choice i don't like a lot of those things and this is why i think that uh, you know tom woods has the aesthetic that i appreciate he's a family man he has He's calm. He values comfort and like and those types of things. He, as he describes himself a lot, he's very bourgeois. I think I kind of fit in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, I think, sort of the kind of going back to the voting versus non-voting versus a lot of these things is that uh, b- 
being a successful politician and making a huge difference like Ron Paul did, when the basis for your entire campaign and you just happen to win because of this is that your goal is to get a platform to argue or to spread liberty. And I would say arguably, maybe maybe Ayn Rand would be the only other person who has made a bigger difference in the 20th century than Ron Paul. And actually, I guess Ron Paul really started making his big difference in the 21st century. But right. may, may, let's say the last hundred years, uh, I think the biggest difference for liberty would be Ayn Rand and Ron Paul, very, very close. And But I think that for a, a lot of like the agorists or the left anarchists, like left anarcho-capitalists, not the anarchists, not the crazy Antifa type anarchists, not the incorrect anarchists, the real anarchists, <laughs> that the reason they don't either talk about Ron Paul or they don't really have very nice things to say about him is aesthetically he is not pleasing to them. Um, and it's because he is a Christian conservative in his personal life, you know, just kind of a calm guy. He values his family and just kind of hanging out and being by himself at home. And, and he's made a huge difference. And But I think that that's kind of where a lot of times, like, even though we're all anarchists sort of on the same side, there is a lifestyle and aesthetic choice that makes us either dislike or value things differently. I mean, this is kind of, you know, the Misesian, well, actually, no, I guess with the Bambavark uh, subjective value um, thing is that like there's certain things that I value. So like for example, like what Sally Agris was talking about in that episode, which I think was episode 33 of the of the Friends Against Government podcast. Um, like a lot of the stuff he was saying, like I agreed with. But like to me, it, it has nothing to do with it being easy or hard. It has to do with like, do I value making a difference in the world more than the difference in my family and mm-hmm. th- that I can make? And by living a certain lifestyle and doing certain things, I create more liberty in my family and spread it. Like I've got four sisters. All of my sisters have, you know, to go back to voting, it went from being like kind of like staunch, you know, which is so weird because a lot of their lifestyle stuff is not this way, but like from like staunch conservative types or voting wise, voting Republican to voting libertarian in, in most of the recent elections, even on the local level level. And like going back to my mom, like she didn't vote for Romney. She voted for Gary Johnson that time. She did vote for McCain, and, like, I kind of expected to, her to. And, I, like, surprisingly, when I was talking to her about it with my dad, like, my dad hasn't voted for a Republican in a while uh, and didn't vote for Trump. He just didn't vote. So, like, like a lot of these things are, like, aesthetics. And, like, I've made a difference in my family. That's, you know, five, six, seven people that I that I made a difference with here. And that is what is valuable to me. And, like, if I... If, you know, if I was interested in it, like I could maybe go and do some of the stuff that they're talking about where you can, and they actually, they brought up aquaponics. I've done aquaponics, um, and I plan on doing more aquaponics. I, I like it and I do value that highly, but there's like certain things where it's like, yeah, I could go out of my way not to go to the toll road, but there's a, there's a, there's a value assessment that you have to make. And it's like, you know what, do it, you know, we we're assuming that the government is a bunch of thugs and murderers. So like I could go out of my way to just like not give my wallet to the thugs and murderers, or I could just do, just give them whatever money or whatever, just so I can get on with my day. And, yeah. and that's kind of where I think the, the level is like, I'm not, I, I'm outraged by the, the stuff that the government does, but also like I value myself very highly. And if I'm not in a position where I can do things, then it's not going to make any difference anyways. And this is one of the things that like, so I listened to that episode. Yeah. So hello guys, uh, if you're somehow or for some reason listening to our episode. Well, I'm I'm gonna I'll I'll tag them in it and just say that we mentioned yeah. it. Like I really enjoyed the episode, and I and what's funny to me about it is like I listen to them and I hear myself having this conversation with Mike Lowry. Like mm-hmm. how many how many years ago that was? Like seven years ago. And yeah. uh, when he's like, you got to read Konkin, and like I'm not doing any of this stuff anymore. I'm not gonna and like. 
And at the time, I was like, I don't get what's going on. But now that I'm like a lot more like up to my shoulders or whatever in, you know, in, I guess, anarchist thought and philosophy is that like I just got to a point where it's like, I think that this is just an aesthetic choice. Like I do... I do think to some degree politics is a waste of time, or voting is a waste of time for sure, but I think engaging in the political process isn't necessarily, because that's when you get one-on-one interaction with people. And also, Mm -hmm. if you value it in another way, it's also not a waste of time, if you like doing it. And I've always had that argument for you, is like, I don't vote because I think it's a waste of my life. Like, I just don't want to go stand in line, I don't like doing it, I'm not talking to anybody, so I don't want to do it. But you value it because you think it's fun. Yeah, and I think that's the, so I think one of the things that, um, and this is not a, this is not a on anybody you and i are anarchists but we're also austrians yeah and i think one of the things that like listening to tom woods the way we did and and uh, you know they they in the episode they the the um Sal. bad guys as they call themselves yeah. um we're talking about you know tom woods is kind of uh, ron paul it walked him through the door and tom woods kept him right. on the other side and you know tom like i started listening to tom like two years ago and, you know, wasn't, I was a libertarian, but like, wasn't really steep. Like, you know, we, as we discussed it, like, I'm not the well-read guy. I'm just kind of the natural, like, this is just how I think. And, right. Like, I don't believe in these things. And a lot of that co- thought comes from you and, you know, not being around you as much. You know, we don't talk as much in that regard, even though, you know, like my most recent post is, you know, kind of like how our friendship is. But like, that's the, the thing about like listening to that, it was, you know, I took much more of the Austrian side of Tom's arguments mm-hmm. because I haven't listened to all of Tom. So like, I don't think, I think Tom did a lot of the early stuff in the show is more on the like anarchist perspective. You may be like that. Whereas like, I'm really into the Austrian side and you, you know, both of us are. Right. And so I think that's where we, you know, you and I kind of see it as those are like all paths lead to the same thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's more like a Jason Stapleton, like, you know, you're, you're on this, this train seat, and I'm on the train seat behind it, you're getting off of stop two, and I'm getting off of stop one, or whatever it is. And I think, like, when I listen to, like, the aggregate part, it's, like, it reminds me of a Timothy Leary quote, which is, you know, turn on, tune in, and drop out. Right. I've never really understood it's like, why would you spend all that time doing that and then drop out at the end? Yeah. Like, it, and, but that's the thing. It's like, to me, it seems like, and I, I think agorism makes more sense to me about you necessarily yeah. before you met your wife. Well, I mean, the thing is, I've always, I, I kind of agree with that to some degree, but I agree to that to some degree, but um, it's, uh, it, a lot of it is, and, and one of the reasons why, like, I didn't really go with Lowry on, on this, uh, you know, Lowry as you guys can hear, apparently has been more influential than, uh, than I, I guess originally gave him credit for. But, uh, I did a lot of stuff with him and he was kind of, I think the first one to kind of go, like he read Konkin and then was just like, I'm an agorist now you take over Jacob. And then, uh, just like dipped out of libertarian politics altogether. Um, and, and granted, like I could, I can see that at least with him, I think to some degree it was that he wasn't making a difference or it was very, very slow difference. And, uh, so it just, he got burned out a lot. I think a lot of libertarians get burned out uh because you know you don't make uh like you don't make a lot of progress is very slow going um but uh i kind of lost my train of thought on this but the i think a lot of it the the you know what you were saying about timothy leary with the tune in turnout or i don't know what the quote is but i know what you're i know i'm familiar with the quote but i don't i can't ever say it but uh 
Um, but like, that's why I'm like saying it's like a, it's like a aesthetic thing is it's kind of like, I, I, you know what a lot of it reminds me of is, is if, if an agorist came and kind of told me that like the idea is it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask for for permission. I'm all on board with that. Like, you know, I did, I did a lot of stuff at our, at our, you know, at the old house that I rented that we would do that was completely legal. Like I made my own DMT. Like that's pretty anarchist or whatever. Uh, you know, I also raised you know, 66 tilapia in big bathtubs in the garage and grew peppers and grew strawberries and like, and ate those things and, uh, brewed my own beer and, you know, tried to grow a lot of the additives that I put in the beer and made some good and some bad and stuff. You know, those are very, I guess, free spirited type things, but it's cause I wanted to do those things. It wasn't because I was like thumbing my nose at the government. I, and, and I guess this kind of goes to another level sort of talking about this whole thing is that there's another component to like my anarchy or whatever is to, you know, a lot of it to me is like a spiritual anarchy like mm-hmm. i'm already free there there can there can be constraints on my body in and in this world people can place constraints on me and that's just sort of part of the the process of going through earth but like spiritually i'm already free so like it's not what the government does is is relevant i guess but like the way i want to say this is that it's irrelevant like they're not going to make me not free they can put me in a cage but that doesn't make me not free that puts my physical body somewhere like in a location that i don't really want to be and for now like my soul or whatever is trapped in my body but it's not going to always be there and i'm not you know it's not this isn't me that my my meat sack or whatever is not me that the the part of me that matters is free already and it and even though it's kind of stuck in this body for now, like it's not relevant to me that uh, that the government is going to do those things to me to the degree that, like, I guess the degree that I, I'm not I'm not really sure where I'm going with this exactly, but well, it's like, I, like it's like like what I'm saying is that it's an it's I think it's an aesthetic choice. It's just a lifestyle that you want to live one way or the other, and this sort of kind of like I'm going to make you know slam shotguns and you know run liquor and like that sort of stuff. Like that is an adventurous spirit that is just not interesting to me. Yeah. You know, like I've, I've, I even had a 3D printer for a while and like I didn't, I stopped using it because it just got boring after a while. Like I was like, man, I mean, this is kind of cool. But like at the same time, like I built it, it did what I wanted it to do for a little while. And then I was like, well, I don't really see what use this is. I, I'll just go down to Walmart and get the thing for 10 cents. And yeah, you know what? I did pay sales tax on that and that does go to a bunch of criminals. But at the same time, I saved myself all of the time that I put into the 3D printer to print the bag, the, you know, the paper, the uh, chip bag closer when I could just go buy the chip bag closer for 10 cents. So like it it is, it's a cost analysis. It's like, well, yeah, I am paying these thugs and they're going to go do bad things with it, but they're just going to go into debt and inflate my currency anyways to go do that stuff. And and on the other hand, it saves me time. I think the other part so from the standpoint of not only do you believe in a uh, spiritual continuance, like you also are, you know, you and I are kind of like quickly of the opinion or relatively of the opinion that like the government is quickly becoming less and less mattersome. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of and, becoming irrelevant. Yeah, and you, you know, you're like, I'm going to live forever. Like, yeah. Not only like, but like physically. Yeah, well, I, I think, I think, I mean, well beyond 200, I'm, I'm almost yeah. certain. So you, you have the concept that you're going to, as long as we don't get nuked, in yeah. essence, that we're going, you're going to live an extremely long amount of time. Right. So I think, like, when you expand your time horizons, I think this is, this is something like Jason Stapleton talks about, like with oil companies. You know, they have hundred-year time horizons. Right. It's like, you know, most normal people have a time horizon of this pizza in my face, <laughs> right? Not the not the sixty sit-ups it's going to take to undo the pizza or something like that. Um. So I think that. 
that's you know kind of one of those like from the, the standpoint of like this is the you know kind of people are like oh the difference between ancap and agorism it's like ancap is more like to me ancap is kind of more like murray rothbard right where murray rothbard you know i was listening to the hans herman hoppe and michael malice episode yeah Michael Malice says, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and Hoppe was talking about, you know, how Murray wouldn't ride the subway. He was afraid to be underground. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, this is a, like kind of a dumb concept as a 31-year-old man to think. Right. I wouldn't imagine Murray Rothbard to ever be afraid of anything. Yeah, well, that's that's so interesting that that was your takeaway from that because that was exactly what I went. I went, huh, I never considered he was afraid of anything. Yeah. Like, it, I, I, in my mind, he's almost like God level, like – you know, I've, I've, yeah, I I've built him up as this like amazing genius character who is like never afraid of anything. And when I heard that, I was like, that's super interesting. It never occurred to me that he would be afraid of something. Yeah. And, and so to me that like, yeah, that was my thought process. Of, like, I can't, you know, didn't like doctors and, you know, like a lot of older people would like don't like doctors. But like, you know, and um, Tom was talking to Lou recently and, you know, he was kind of talking about like back at the beginning of the Mises Institute where some things you wish you would undo, you know, had done that you didn't do or you do differently. And like one of Lou's big things was make Murray go to the doctor. Yeah. Like, you know, he lost one of his closest, dearest friends mm-hmm. when, you know, the guy just wouldn't go to the doctor. And right. like that, you know, but like, you know, like an agorist, like to me, at least from, because I've. Like, I didn't talk to Lowry as much about it. Right. And, but La- and even- Lowry and I spent a lot of time together outside the meetings, which I, I don't, I think that, like, I think in my, like, memory of you and me, like, you and I were, like, this tight unit from the beginning. But I think yeah. it was a time when, like, you and I would see each other at the meetings and were friendly, and it just, it took a while till we started, like, being as tight as we were. Well, until you, until you started living closer. Yeah. Like, Lowry lived more in that direction. Right. And so you guys would just ended up doing stuff and there's a lot of stuff where i've heard like on the show like i just didn't know you guys you were doing things at that time right and, well that's you know, true because there was a lot i did a lot of activist stuff back then too yeah. and i think that i don't know if you weren't invited or you just didn't care or didn't know what was going on i think probably a combination of all three yeah like, but that's the thing i was like working going to school right not that you weren't doing those things but then i was also hanging out with my friend Lindsay, and then I was, you know, that's right yeah i forgot about that actually um so you know i was doing a lot of that stuff yeah so but that's, that's the thing is like to me an ag- agorist seemed much more like a like pioneer spirit. Yeah, maybe. Like you know, like the um, Lysander Spooner to kind of bring that back to this. He seems more like an agorist to me, where mm. like you know he understands being comfortable and he doesn't right. begrudge a man for doing so. But he is under no means going to respect you if you don't. And like not even saying respect is the, the right way to say it. But like to him, your comfort could, isn't necessarily an excuse to keep sucking up to the state you yeah. know what i mean like and it seems to me like mary rothbard is much more like well you know we have to do these things because we have to try and like agris is much more like no, if you just stop paying attention they, they won't be there and if they put you in jail then you died for the cause and to me yeah. that embodies some of the statist stuff i don't like and i'm not i'm not saying these people are saying you should die for the cause or, right. you know like be happy like a communist like you died for the cause yeah. Well, and, and also, I mean, just to kind of also reinforce that clarity or whatever, they did, like, Sal, who, who's a very interesting guy and has, you know, top-notch memes uh, on Twitter, uh, one of the things that he did say is a lot of the examples that he gave, he's like, do what you're comfortable with. And so a lot of it was, like, avoiding toll roads, for example. 
Yeah. Um, he's like, if you can avoid a toll road, you know, avoid the toll road. That's a, that's, you know, that's an, that's an act of agorism or whatever. And, or like, uh, you know, when you're doing a transaction, don't do it officially, do a transaction through Bitcoin or yeah. something along those lines. Where it's like, all of those things seem like such a hassle, <laughs> but, but, uh, but that's also me, I think me just kind of being a naysayer on it is like, I do, I have a, a particular life that I lead and like specific goals. And a lot of my goals though, like if they come to fruition and I do have so such long time horizons on a lot of these goals, but if a lot of things that you and I've talked about off the air come to fruition, like that is an act of liberty in that, like almost everything that like my future plans are, there is this like side goal of it being like, and here's the example of this great libertarian having done this. Yeah. Uh, whether it has anything to do with libertarianism or like, you know, anarchy or not, it's like, you know, the, 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 you know, Jacob Lindsay Corp, which is not what it'll be called, but like the Jacob Lindsay Corp, which is also a libertarian company. So like, for example, um, I don't really think of this as a libertarian company, but the guy who, uh, started Whole Foods is libertarian leaning and, but Whole Foods is kind of a, like, I would say like a, you know, a yuppie Democrat kind of store Mm -hmm. and, so if he does get to sort of interject some of his like libertarian leaning type philosophy into his brand and into the market that he serves, that does permeate into this kind of like into these like, you know, middle class lefties. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing where like um, one of the things they were talking about was like stopping using like, they were, you know, they were harping on using Tor, which. Oh, Yeah. Which I, I I did for about a year. I think you remember back when I was doing that. And you know, to be honest, I don't. Oh, I remember yeah. you talking about doing it, but I, I also yeah, it, it's just so freaking slow to do things. What I seem to remember <laughs> is like also Tor isn't like it's totally traceable. Uh, I think it depends on how you set everything up, but uh, I think like. From what I remember, it's like the Tor network had been compromised since its birth, and it was also created by the government. Oh, maybe that's possible. Yeah. So, like, my understanding is Tor is not anywhere near secure yeah. when people can Well, do. And I know that, like, a lot of it, too, I, I don't know about Tor specifically, like, but if you use a proxy server, like, that's mm-hmm. traceable also. But yeah. it, it, like, if somebody is attacking you, you know, through your, through, like, digitally, if they're attacking you, and, the, you know, the government stealing your information is attack. Um, so if somebody's digitally attacking you, the first thing they're going to go for is low hanging fruit. Yes. Um, and this is sort of the same thing as like, if you put a security system, like ADT security system on your house, it's not going to stop people from breaking into your house. But if they see that you have an ADT system or, you know, whatever security system you have, they kind of go like, eh, this house has it, that house doesn't that one's the easier one to go for. And so it's kind of like you take these steps or whatever to, you know, and I, I don't literally live that securely. People could probably attack me on, and, and I'm sure the government has copious amounts of my data, but, uh, and I, and I use Google products. So I know that Google has stolen all my data. So, uh, but it's kind of like at that point where it's like, since its inception, they've been stealing from me. And I, I know that it's at this point, I got, there's nothing I, it doesn't really help me to become secure at this point, especially since I don't do much online. Yeah. And that's where like, I'm partially like switching to the Brave browser and yeah, like I'm, you know, thinking about creating my own cloud storage yeah. sort of thing and, you know, like slowly pulling back and pulling away the data that I have been leaking out. Yeah. And so like now, uh, to kind of switch gears real quick, uh, you know, tastinganarchy.com where mm-hmm. we, uh, we don't have a uh, cookie policy. So, uh, we're not tracking you. We don't give a crap where you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but if your browser uh, tracks you, there's nothing we can do about that. Yeah. <laughs> so 
you know, your opinion, you guys, you can uh, feel safe. We're, we're not tracking where you're going. You know, see that fun policy update on what our cookies were doing. Yeah. Um, you can follow Jacob Oz. Uh, hijinks on twitter by uh following us on tasting anarchy mm-hmm. at twitter.com and then uh if you want to send us an email talking about the speed of google products that we both use yep uh tasting anarchy at gmail.com so yep so let me let me let's go now that we've got those plugs in and uh let's go real quick into the article that i saved over for last week and i yeah. don't i don't have a very good segue to this okay um but uh, this. I don't even like my masterful segue. No. <laughs> right. So there, I, I don't remember why I chose this for last week, but I wanted to revisit it because it's from Mises, and um, and I've been using so many like Beltway sources lately, like Reason, and uh, I think I even used a couple of Cato sources, which like I don't have a problem using those. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I just wanted to use this Mises one and. Whether we talked about it last week or not, I don't remember, but, uh, you know, home, the homelessness thing always comes up. And, uh, I think I've talked about the homeless stuff a bunch here because, like, my neighborhood doesn't have very many homeless people. Uh, but the, you know, it's a city, Dallas. They do, they do have some homeless people and I see them once in a while and I'm always kind of like, I, I don't really get what's going on, but, I, um, we had this conversation. I might have shared it on the show before, but like somebody at work came. Yeah, you know, I get to work really early because uh, I want to leave early, and my work now kind of affords me that flexibility. So I usually get there around seven. Um, and one of the like, I guess she's an office manager. I'm not really sure what her job is, but uh, she <laughs> she came into the software engineer room that I that I sit in, and she was like, uh, she was like, there's these homeless people under the bridge, and I feel really bad for them, and I'm I just want to like you know maybe go get them some stuff from Whataburger and like bring it over to them to eat. And like, I, I didn't say anything. I'm sort of new there still. And I was just kind of like, I, I, I'm not going to say anything. And, and, uh, my project manager was like, no, don't get, he's like, they're all, they're, they're drug addicts or they are choosing to be homeless or all that sort of stuff. And I was like, well, that's true, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Uh, and she's like, well, I just feel so bad for them. And, you know, we, and, uh, like, I want to go like do something for them. And she, and then she turned to me and, and specifically was like, well, Jacob, what do you think? Should, should we? And I was like, look, there are so many food programs out there for them. I really don't think it's a good idea for you to go over there. They, they might be out on the street because they choose to be homeless, but they also might be out on the street because they're nuts and you're putting yourself in a dangerous situation. So like those types of things come up occasionally. And you know, she didn't buy it. She was like, well, I don't think they choose to be homeless. I think they just slipped through the cracks and I went, eh. The amount of money that the government spends on the homeless, like, uh, you know, they probably still could slip, slip through the gaps, but your Whataburger hamburgers are just not going to make that big of a difference. If you want to make a difference, you know, you could call an organization that maybe can kind of help them. They'll come talk to them. And if they're crazy, maybe they can get some help. But if they want to be there, they want to be there. Uh-huh. Um, but anyways, that's sort of just like a, you know, an anecdote or whatever that's going on. But uh, this particular article is, um, oh, I remember why I chose this now. So there's an article that that was kind of circulating around on Reddit uh, a couple weeks ago from The Stranger that uh, basically it's like, you know how like you get those articles every once in a while when they're like, okay, libertarians, gotcha. And mm-hmm. it's like, but it's like a caricature of the argument. So like this one is, is by Eli Sanders and it's called The Homelessness Crisis Continues. Maybe libertarians have a solution, question mark. But then they go through it and it's basically like... Uh, Ha ha ha, libertarians always have the most ridiculous idea. Here's the top stupid ideas that libertarians have for homelessness. And so, like, they give them, and, like, the top ideas are give homeless people guns. Uh, <laughs> do do nothing because other people elsewhere are worse off. Do nothing because homeless people just need uh, libertarians to give them more liberty. Uh, offer... Uh, 
offer offer talk of empowerment instead of actual anti-poverty programs. Um, end all income tax, which you know, ending all income tax is a uh, is something that would help actually help very low people who are on the verge of homelessness and or even homeless people that have jobs. But uh, well, it would help all Americans. Yeah. Yeah, so I kind of I kind of broke it down, and so like so basically what my breakdown is is that like the progressives try to help people with government programs, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of their main thing. And, and I think you and I were talking about this earlier is that you know progressives and liberals and and even conservatives on on other types of issues a lot of times are not incorrect in identifying a problem. What they're incorrect on, though, I think a lot of the time is thinking that problem through logically and correctly identifying the source of the problem and then coming up with a solution that will not do more harm. Yes. Um, and so they a lot of times the progressives, you know, they'll, they'll kind of go into this like we need to help people with government programs. Um, and then when the program fails, their solution almost always is it just didn't have enough money. And so they <laughs> so they compound the problem again by calling for the government to come in with more programs. Um, and, and then they don't, and they fail to kind of look at what's going on that caused the problem in the beginning. So like the article itself is satirical and it's, and I think I, I read it already, it's called the homeless, the homelessness crisis continues. Maybe libertarians have a solution. Um, and it, mocks uh uh so the guy who wrote it is jacob g hornberg so he's mm-hmm. they kind of are they're you know the this you know to summarize the article they're they're mocking the salute the libertarian solutions where they're not even mocking it they're caricaturing it those these are not really like i don't think any i've never met a libertarian who is like aha the the solution to homelessness is give homeless people guns well there was the guy running for office somewhere who was running on the libertarian banner who proposed that giving them shotguns i i do know that, that was the proposal but his proposal wasn't that it was going to end homelessness his he, he was saying this would make them safer and it would arguably uh but yeah. it, the, the like these are not those the the reason that it's a, a caricature is because he is saying that this is a libertarian solution to homelessness it is not a solution to homelessness because that was not what it was proposed to. They were just saying ha- them having guns would be good for them. And not to mention that was one libertarian who said that. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the other issue when he said, like, do nothing, I've never even heard a, a libertarian say that nothing should be done. But well, but for, but this kind of goes back to, like, I think you and I actually talked about this earlier this week as well when through, like, texts or whatever. Uh, like, you know, f- we're both pretty hardcore libertarians, pretty hardcore anarchists. So, like, when I watch a movie or I hear somebody speak or something like that, I hear something different than what they're actually saying a lot of the time. Yes. And it goes through this, like, prism of, like, libertarianism um, and – or, like, this prism of, like, complete anarchy. And a lot of times it turns me off very quickly. Like, I'm, I'm actually reading reading a pretty good book right now on uh, – and actually, I think the uh, – like Liberty Today, or maybe it was the the Christian Anarchist. I'm not sure. One of them, one of those podcasts, actually had the author of this book on recently, which like was a super big coincidence. But it's about um uh the the Quaker who was like one of the early abolitionists, and he happened to be a, like a deformed dwarf. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so he's like a really interesting person. But he was like in the 1600s, was like railing against slavery and stuff like that. And he ultimately, I mean, he was 20 or 30 years before his time, but he ultimately got the Quakers to kind of as a group go, yeah, slavery is wrong, and we're not going to engage in this. Um, and like years and years and years before anybody was really actively op- opposing slavery, they all freed their slaves and then started doing different activities to try to buy back slaves and, and free them or whatever with like various contract agreements not to buy more slaves and that and that kind of thing. Like interesting methods. But anyways, 
going back to the article, the the do nothing argument is what I think a liberal when a liberal says that a libertarian set or a leftist says when a libertarian when they are saying this is a libertarian solution to do nothing, what they really mean is libertarians are saying it's not a government problem. It's so what what there's what I think what they're trying to say is exactly along the lines of what you're saying. Yeah. I think what they're trying to say is that our solution is to take no direct action. Our our solution is to like their their ideas. We're saying, you know, oh well I think it's both. I think sometimes they think we're saying do literally nothing. Well but and and you know what, on the flip side of that we do we kind of caricaturize them and kinda of going back to your voting thing is that like we I I often make fun of leftists a lot of time as being, you know, kind of self righteous or whatever because they're always like, Oh, well I voted for that. It's like, yeah, mm-hmm. but you didn't actually do anything. You you effectively did nothing. And and so like when a leftist sees that like oh, libertarians are not advocating that we put in these new policies through, like, democratic action or whatever. They mean to do nothing. Whereas, like, libertarians do have, and I'm going to get into them later on, uh, do have solutions for homelessness. And uh, and a lot of the solutions involve some direct action through charity, but also indirect action through changing government policies in a way that would remove government from the equation. Yeah, and I think that's the I think that's the thing that people like. I think it's a dual like he this person combined two things. Yeah, but I think like they're kind of thinking of the standpoint of like right now, you know, kind of your response was not to do anything in regard to those people under the bridge. Right. Well, and that's the thing is like I mean you you've known me for a long time. I have done a lot of like work with home like not directly with homeless people, but through things that are you know an attempt to alleviate hunger or like when I was much younger we. We did like a, I don't know if it's called a halfway house, but like people who were trying to get out of like the homeless shelter, like single moms with kids, they would come and live with us for uh, a couple of months until they could go get their own place. Um, and so, you know, part of being in a household that does that kind of thing is that, you know, that mom is trying to get out there and work. You know, you, you take, you all take turns watching the kids and like, you know, playing with them or going doing something. And if they have, you know, boy, well, boys and girls, I guess. Like you spend some time with them. They don't have an, a, an older male role model, really. So you try to like do things with them that they might find fun. Like, you know, let's go out and, you know, shoot hoops or whatever, or like ride our bikes or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, or just like see that, you know, come with me. Like, this is where I work and show them around where I work and that kind of thing. Um, you know, back when I worked at the bookstore. So, but like, so th- like that's the thing is like I have done a lot of work and my, my solution is not like, when you see homeless people on the street or whatever and they're begging, I would say, yeah, don't do anything. You don't give them money and don't give them – don't go get them food either because like that's not don't, – don't interact with them a lot of time because you don't know the situation. You're, you're putting yourself in a dangerous position. And if you're not taking care of your first, yourself first, you cannot do something later when you're damaged or injured or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there are groups that you can – that you can – you know, like for example, the uh, – uh, South Hampton, uh, the food bank of southeastern Hampton Roads, they do a really good job going out and looking for people who need help. And, and you know, a lot of times it's not homeless people that that are there have a, a problem with hunger. A lot of time it's like disabled people or elderly who can't get out of their house, and you okay. can't and you can't see them. So like this is this is where like people who are very conspicuously in need, you know, in quotes or whatever, are not a lot of the times the people who are in need. A lot of times those people are not in need. They they're just people who. That's the lifestyle that they choose to live. And 
it's hard to make that distinction, but and it's not my place to make that distinction. But there are people who are trained to make that distinction, mm-hmm. and it's not me. I can I can take action with that group to help out that group so that they can go help them. But me taking direct action is not the best use of my time and resources. And and also me going and voting for the government to do something is certainly a negative use of my resources and of the community's resources. Yes. Um. And so, anyways, kind of moving on to the other things because we're starting to run out of time. Um, so empowering the individual, uh, that was one of the things that he was like, ha ha, how can empowering the individual work or whatever it, well, empowering the individual, a lot of the libertarian solutions for these things are things like relaxing, uh, licensure laws. So Uh that, that does empower the individual to go make money. And if they can go make money, then they are not homeless anymore. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's like, so your solution is to take from somebody who is like, you know, like when you guys were you know, significantly younger. Mm -hmm. And you talked about like, you know, possibly having visited the food bank and stuff like that as a family, like in need where the government hadn't been taking however much percentage of your, you know, parents, your dad's income. Yeah. Would you guys have needed to do that? Right. You know, those sort of things. That's where like, you know, allowing somebody to create their own business where they get to keep the rewards of their work. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh yeah, that's, that's such a bad choice. Whereas like, you know, if I didn't take 10% from you, you wouldn't have been homeless. Yeah. And it's not not even like the 10% makes it to those people. Like it, there's, I I think I I might actually have the statistic in this. So I'll I'll read through the rest of my notes on this, but Mm -hmm. there, there's a large percentage that goes to overhead. I think it's, I think it's only 30 cents on the dollar actually makes it to the, uh, person receiving the charity when it goes to the government. Mm -hmm. Um, and but through a, a private charity, usually seventy or more makes it to the individual. Um, yeah. And there are some charitable organizations that are not the best, but um, through like good ones, like for example, the food bank. The food bank does make very good use of their money, and something like eighty-five or ninety cents on the dollar makes it to the person who's trying to receive them or who needs to receive the help. Um, and like they're, I don't know, I know that the the food banks are kind of like franchises, so they're not all as efficient as that, but like on average, they do a very good job. Um, yeah. And then the next item was ending income tax, which they're like, ha ha, how could ending income tax help them? And it's like, look, this, this does help people who are on the verge. And as we were just talking about, who are on the, the cusp of becoming homeless, like there's a big difference, you know, Victoria and I talk about this all the time. Like I get from taxes, I get nearly $600 taken out of my paycheck every time. And that six hundred dollars, like Victoria and I are doing okay. We're 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 I would say middle middle class, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. We do we do well for ourselves, but Victoria doesn't work yet. And when she does work, we'll probably be upper middle class. But um, that six hundred dollars isn't anything to like sneeze at. Like that's a significant amount of money that could make a big difference in our lives. Yeah, most people don't have five hundred dollars for an emergency. Yeah, and you're having six hundred dollars taken taxes. Right. Right. And, and our taxes are lower here than they were in Virginia. Like I had more taken out when I lived in Virginia because we had the, the state tax taken out as well. But, uh, so like, like this whole, like this whole concept where they're like, you, do you remember like several years ago when everybody was like, uh, not everybody, but like a lot of people were complaining about the, I think I read it on Reddit and it would go around a lot where, where they'd be like, conservatives just don't understand what it's like to not have the $15 minimum wage. My girlfriend has to get shoes every two weeks because she's a wage and she wears them out or whatever and uh-huh. and conservatives are like just buy better shoes well you can't buy better shoes when you're only making 725 an hour you know that that was kind of their argument right yeah but you never go like yeah you can go buy these ten dollar pair of shoes but you realize that like 60 bucks are taken out of your paycheck every single time wouldn't you like to have that 60 bucks to go buy a better pair of shoes so that you wouldn't have to go buy new ones every week exactly 
and like they never make that connection and it's it's like it's it's psychological disconnect or it's a purposeful blindness but I, I think like you and I talked about this a little bit this week as well is that like I'm starting to recognize this is a little bit in my in myself as you know like and the reason I brought that Quaker book up and I think I just kind of lost my train of thought was there are certain things that I read in it and it's distasteful to me as a anarcho-capitalist. Mm-hmm. But I do recognize that this person is a hero in the, basically in the anarchist movement. He was railing against the state at, at the time because the law of the state was slavery. Exactly. And, but he did also have these kind of like side things as well that like I, I do find distasteful. And a lot of it was, I think a lot of it was that there wasn't really a, a very fully developed theory of capitalism. I, I think the wealth of nations was probably out, but there what and there, but there also wasn't really this like there wasn't the Communist Manifesto or anything like that. So like these are a lot of people who are just kind of like they'll make these statements that now we would say are economic statements, but economics as a science or as a branch of science or a branch of philosophy, however you think of it, didn't really exist back then. So sometimes and discipline, yeah, yeah, as a discipline. So like there, are, so when I read through it and I like I hear some of the things that he says, I'm like, ah, and I really want to put the book down, but I'm trying to like train myself to like put my disgust aside for a minute and read the book so that you can get the information and then make your critique on it. Because I do know that this person was very influential in doing something really great. I want to know about him. I want to know his biography and that sort of thing. And I don't want to like be dissuaded because I have a I have a prism that I view the world through and 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 it's fine to have a prism that you view the world through especially if it's like a prism of freedom but you're going but it's lim- it's self-limiting and I don't want that so uh, yeah how much how much do you deprive yourself of growth opportunity it just in like um the things Karl, it's like a Hoppe, yeah. how Hoppe thinks Marx was right about some things yes but it's like you know, the class is the state versus everyone else. Right. It's a cl- there's a class struggle. Like, those sort of things where it's, you know, Hoppe is, like, you know, like, I haven't read a huge amount of Hoppe, but every time, like, I hear him talk and, like, mm-hmm. listen to things he says, it's like listening to Walter Block. You're like, I don't know what he's going to say, but I'm betting it's better reasoned out than most things. Right. That yeah. You know, like expounded on the show, those sort of things where it's so, and that's to me, it's just like, okay, I don't always agree with the things Walter Block says, because, you know, as we went back to our homesteading, <laughs> like trying yeah. to figure that out, but like this guy and, you know, had he had the advantage of reading Rothbard or something right. like that, who knows, he may have still had like some of the other insights, but may have been able to change his thinking. Right. And who's to say that, you know, he didn't live long enough because of the other problems he had to yeah. not have come to these other conclusions. Right. And I think that this is sort of sort of why I'm trying to have this perspective in this particular article by uh, Eli Sanders, the the homelessness crisis and maybe, liber- you know, it's the satire article that I've been kind of summarizing uh-huh. is I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that like he is a, a Seattle leftist and he's already got kind of a he's got a prism that he's viewing the world for and it's not allowing him to hear the argument that libertarians make but you know as a as a libertarian or an anarchist uh or like an anarchist with libertarian leanings um i think it's up to us to kind of like try to clarify the issue for people who read this kind of thing and go like oh he's makes some you know he makes some good points why would libertarians say these things they don't this is not what libertarians are saying and so now that the article is kind of summarized uh we're going i you know getting to the mises article where mises doesn't have response specifically to this article but mises because it is such a wealth of information um they do have kind of a summary of some of the possible cures for homelessness and uh so 
I might have actually, I might have said that the earlier article was by Hornberger, did I? I don't remember, okay. honestly. So, so the article from The Stranger, which is caricaturing uh, libertarians, is by Eli Sanders. The Mises article is by Jacob G. Hornberger, and it's called The Cure for Homelessness. Um, and so uh, Hornberger... Hornberger in the Mises article points out uh, that that it's a, basically it's a problem that statists have that they see the state as always the solution even though the evidence shows that the uh, leading contributor to homelessness is things like zoning laws and minimum wage and actually he's done the calculations and I I, I believe I mean he's writing for Mises so he's some sort of economist or has some sort of training in that and he says actually the top two are zoning laws and minimum wage. Uh, and he says, and there's various ways you can calculate this. So, uh, and Hornberger, again, he kind of points out that progressives always want to strawman the libertarian arguments um, and rarely want to address things like zoning and minimum wage. Like, And, it, and we saw in the Stranger article that he, they never really talk about zoning or minimum wage. They they kind of sidestep the issue and then make fun of, of things like saying empowering the individual, which is kind of an, is like not saying anything or ending income tax, which is a complicated issue. And I could see that being like a more difficult argument to take on. Um, but like no libertarians say do nothing. The one guy was saying something about the giving homeless people guns and it wasn't even about ending homelessness. It was about, uh, defending. Yeah. Defending homeless. And, and then the empowering the individual is like, I don't even know why that's, that's an argument. Like ever, aren't leftists about empowering people, but I guess they're more about empowering groups, but I, I don't know. But, uh, so Hornberger kind of points this out that like, yeah, they're always straw man, manning libertarian arguments. And the reason that they are is because the solutions that libertarians present, um, is are things that you would that would it would remove the state from the situation um and it would also place personal responsibility on people so like one like i got i got it kind of summarized here is that um hornberger says uh the reason that they they don't want to address zoning and minimum wage and they want to straw man libertarian arguments is because statists have a difficult time taking personal responsibility in general so like just for everything they have a they have a difficult time taking personal responsibility um they want to socialize basically all problems and everything including their own responsibilities for themselves so that when uh, a status solution fails and it always fails um they're not the ones doing the bad thing it's the corrupt other that's doing the bad thing so like so like if a if a socialist or like a status is is like well the government should you know provide homeless for or low income housing right and then low right. income housing ends up being a trash hole and has like frequent crimes and rapes and all that sort of stuff, they can always go like, well, I didn't cause that problem. I voted for good housing for the homeless. It was these corrupt other people who caused the problem. We just need more money for it. And they obfuscate, obfuscate their responsibility yeah. to the situation. Right. So, yeah. So, and he says that this is just a personal failing of a lot of leftists is that they don't want to take personal responsibility in their, in their life. Um, and so they advocate the state to do these things so that the, the responsibility is off of their shoulders. They've done their part. They voted or they did, you know, or they advocated the Democratic candidate or whatever. Um, but they did not take personal responsibility for these other people. And they didn't, they didn't go join the food bank and like figure out how to donate money to the food bank or how to make the food bank more efficient or get food to the people who really need the food, that kind of thing. They voted, which takes almost no time at all. Um, you know, 
45 minutes or whatever if you want to stand in line. Well, that 45 minutes is probably better spent volunteering at the food, at the soup kitchen, you know. Um, but anyway, so the example that uh, Hornberger gives is he says Seattle is a good example. And so some of these numbers are his. Some of these are numbers that I dug into. So the population of Seattle is about uh, 704,000 people, right? So Seattle has a pretty high minimum wage right now. It's eleven fifty. It's set to increase to fifteen dollars over the next several years. So they have like they have this like incremental gain on you know what I'm talking about. So like they've got like it's eleven fifty now, but then like it's supposed to go up by a couple of cents every year. Um, they also what's that? The gradual increase. Yeah, yeah, a gradual increase. But eventually it'll be fifteen. They also have some of the most strict zoning laws in the country, and they have a zoning history that's longer than most localities that goes all the way back to 1923. Um, you know, prior in in most of the United States, they they you kind of just could build whatever wherever until recently, until like the 1940s. Um, but they but Seattle's been doing it for a long time. Um, so, and one of the specific zoning issues that Seattle has that makes uh, makes homelessness so prevalent there is that they have extreme restrictions on multifamily homes and apartment complexes. So Seattle has this like again, this is kind of going back to aesthetics. The people who are, who rule Seattle, they want Seattle to look a certain way, and their idea of Seattle is a lot of single family homes. You know, wow. and uh, and and I I really like Seattle. Like I've been there. You know, every year of my life since I was, you know, before I could remember, since I was probably one year old, um, and it's it's a, I think it's a pretty city. It's not nearly as pretty as my memory because now there's homeless people everywhere. But it is it's just it's just sprawling single family homes. They're and they're nice looking, but if you go look at the prices, they're extremely expensive. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the industry that exists there, but it also has to do with the building, the zoning restrictions. Like you can't build a, a very good complex, like a, a high rise apartment complex or, you know, or even a low rise. You, you can fit on the same property that you could set four houses. You could put a low rise that could fit a lot more families in it or a lot more individuals. Um, so Seattle has the third largest homeless population in the U.S. That's 11,643 by their metrics. Um, just to kind of compare this to uh, other cities, Seattle has 8.2% of the population of New York City, but it has 15.2% of the number of homeless people. So it's got, um, you know, you would think that cities, and there may be some scale issue going on, but like Seattle as a percentage of the population has way more homeless people than New York City. Mm -hmm. And now Hornberger further goes on to compare this with uh, a town that he grew up in. Um, which is Laredo, Texas. Uh, and so Laredo um, is a incredibly poor town. Uh, it's not as poor as it used to be, but when he grew up in, in there back in the you know, 50s and 60s, uh, they had very, very low, uh, very, very low homeless rate. They do have a slightly larger homeless rate now. And I went and did some research on it, but they do also have much stricter zoning laws now. Um, but one of the things that he pointed out, he says when he was a kid, he they had a family friend uh that he would go to Mexico, Laredo's on the border, he would go to Mexico, hire Mexicans and buy supplies in Mexico, come back across the border and buy cheap houses or, or build build cheap houses on small plots. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we they had, you know, the 10 or 15 odd homeless people that were just kind of like, you know, homeless drunks or whatever. But he said there was never extremely extreme amounts of homeless people the way that like Seattle has and Seattle has had for years and years and years. And he, he attributes this to uh, Laredo um, having no zoning laws, it being a time before there was extreme minimum wage. Um, it was, you know, 50s and 60s. And that um, that his, you know, his friend and others 
because there was competition going on, they had a specialty of building low-income housing for the poor. And they and he made a profit. And he was very well off doing it. So the poor would come in. They would buy the houses. Back then, people that were poor didn't get mortgages for houses. They would buy them cash. They'd save up. And there was almost no homeless people there. And so he says, this is the model that we point to, not specifically at Laredo, but we have other examples that are like this, where we show that if you decrease minimum wage, if you remove zoning laws so that there can be large multifamily homes uh, or apartment complexes, um, those two things would drastically reduce the number of homeless people around. And But whenever a leftist presents like a libertarian solution, they never talk about either one of those issues. And mm. the reason is because both of those issues are state-caused, and they it's almost like they don't have the ability to criticize the policy. They only have the ability to criticize specific individuals who are in the government. And so, or, or maybe it's too complicated. They don't want to think about it. I'm not sure, but it's, 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 it, I, I agree with him. I think that this is a personal responsibility thing is that they just don't want to take personal responsibility for it. Well, is, what, what I would think is they would argue, they would try to say that those things did cause those things. So like the high minimum wage, like, you, you hear the left talking about it rarely now, but occasionally somebody will, in their side will have the fortitude to step up and say, well, you know, some people are going to lose jobs. Yeah. And that's, and that's where they think is like, oh, no, 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 no. Well, we already, we already, we already agreed, maybe. Maybe they already agreed that the minimum wage removes jobs. And that's why they need more programs, because you need to have a living wage. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. But whatever it is, I just thought that was a very interesting thing. So I wanted to get it off of my list before I forgot completely about it. I, yeah, I think it's a, I think that's a, like, it's one of those situations where, like, I, you know, and this is, maybe, maybe you're right about something we talked about a while ago, where, like, you think the left is talking in a new language that you don't understand, and oh, I yeah. don't think about it that much, that much necessarily, but, like, we're, you know, pointing out, like, their own statistics saying that, like, you know, as the minimum wages increased, and as zoning laws increased, homelessness has increased. Yeah, and that's, that's a correlation, and they're like, and, the, and I used to get this all the time when I would argue with people in college and high school. I'd be like, well, here's this correlation. This, to me, looks like it would be a problem. They And they'd always go, correlation doesn't equal causation. Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, so what's the cause? Not enough and programs. Well, it's like, that shows how, how the value of a of a uh, state-funded education. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, and it yeah. also shows the value of slogans, is that, like, you know, the slogan being correlation doesn't equal causation, and you can see when the left goes out and does their chance, they always, they like, I, I remember watching this video recently on, on, I think, Reddit, where they've got, like, a bunch of, like, white kind of, like, I'm not politically correct, I'm just going to say dykey, I don't know how else to describe them, like, fat, butch-looking chicks. Uh, yeah. I would describe that as dykey, but I, I don't know what... I don't know how else to describe it. So everybody get get whatever you think dykey is in your mind. That's what I'm describing. Uh, and like sitting there going, yelling at black guys who are marching for gun rights, mm -hmm. yelling black lives matter to them. <laughs> and it's like, what? What world do you exist in? And, and that's, and you know, I guess this is, well, this will be the best place for us to end because it does kind of go back to this. And I, and I, and I see it more and more that I do think that there is a, a fraction, or like a, and maybe it's that, maybe it's what like a lot of the more mainstream people talk about, like Ben Shapiro and, um, you know, uh, Ruben and all that sort of stuff, this fracturing in between the left and right. And I don't really see it that way exactly, but where we're at a point where we're talking past each other. And that's kind of why I've been sort of going like, I don't want to be in that area. Like I, that's why I'm trying to like be able to see through my prison prism a little bit. Like I am very confident in my beliefs and 
the philosophy and, and the uh, research and all that sort of stuff that I've done. Um, but I also don't want to be stuck in that spot where I can't hear what they're saying. And, yeah. and I think that this is is very very true is I, th- I think that the the left and right are now in places where they just speak completely different languages and you can see this over just this will date the episode it's uh september 30th is that that kavanaugh ford testimony stuff that just happened recently um that like if you if i go look at a lot of my family on Facebook because I do have some uh, kind of left-wing Facebook family and then I go look at my family who is very right-leaning. They didn't watch the same thing apparently because what they're saying happened is not at all what happened. Neither one of the sides and like and and they were and they're like live Facebook or live tweeting it and I'm like what are you guys watching? And well, I think I think this is a I think this is a showing the failure of the state. Yeah. Because and so this is this is hard to this is going to be a throwback to an episode or two ago. They whitewashed history so much to make people think the New Deal was universally accepted, right? And it was reviled, and there was you know like same with the Civil War. Yeah, well, yeah, we did talk. I, and actually, I mentioned that in my article about libertarians on the prairie a little bit, and I think we talked about it a bit on the show, is that there was a lot of people, like my grandma included, who hated FDR and, yeah. and thought that he was a terrible person, was st- was stealing from them, making their lives more miserable, and that the New Deal was an awful thing. Yeah, and like, it's been whitewashed. And I think that, and then like, remember McCarthyism? Yeah. Where, like, well, you it know, turned out he was kind of right. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I'm just kidding, but, yeah, but to some degree. Yeah, but, yeah, but like, that's the thing, is like, you know, he came out with these you know, insane accusations, yeah. and and the right just lockstep through these people out of out of their worlds. Right. Like the left was just like, what are you even talking about? Like we don't even understand the language you're using anymore. Like right. where's your evidence? Like we're we're right here with you, man. We'll we'll kick him out of government if you can give us some evidence. Yeah. Like we won't even hold a trial. We'll kick him out. So, but like people have this like like misconcept that like there's some sort of unity in politics because we've had Ronald Reagan serve eight years, you know, a four year term of George Bush. Yeah. Bill Clinton served eight years. Junior served eight years. Then Obama served eight years. The U.S. has never been like not politically divided. Like, right. Like they they impeached like a sitting president who the left and the right hated. Yeah. Like you know they like with Nixon like they like. There was peace with Eisenhower, but like a whole bunch of the country hated Kennedy. Yeah. Thought he was just insane. And then like Johnson even more. And like, yeah. and then well, it, and it, I, and I, I do agree with you. I, I would say that like the, there, it has always been politically divided. I think the difference now, and I think that this is, uh, is what's causing a language divider is, um, is the accelerated pace because of, of accelerated communication in the internet. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I just think that it is, and I, I even, I even sometimes have this with my coworkers when I interact with them is that like, there is, there is, I'm only 31 and like I work with a lot of young, younger people, um, in their mm-hmm. earlier twenties. And there is not concept divide, but there are like, there is a cultural divide between us. Mm-hmm. And it's that, a internet culture that I was part of is not the same as the internet culture that they're part of. And there's also these other pockets that uh, of the, of the internet culture that exists. And one of them is this, is this, is like this extreme left-wing internet culture. And then this, I wouldn't even say extreme, but like there's a left-wing internet culture and a right-wing internet culture. And then there's a, there's a, there's a spectrum in between. But I think like the things that are going on right now, and and Michael Malice actually points this out quite a bit, is that this is a cultural divide that has been brewing in America for a while, you know, at least since the nineties, probably longer. And 
uh, the internet has kind of accelerated it, and it, and the divide is getting bigger. And like Malice pointed this out on I think Twitter during the Kavanaugh thing is uh, is he says that it's just it's basically this stuff has been going on, but this Kavanaugh divide is sort of bringing it into politics now for the first time. Is that you see this there there is clearly a divide going on that is I wouldn't say worse than ever before, but it's. Uh, I think much more clear and um, and somebody brought this up to Malice and it might have been on one of his podcasts I don't remember but I'm going to attribute it to him saying this is that um, they were saying that uh, that this is going to polarize the moderates right because of, of how like absurd the not the accusations are not absurd the lack of evidence is what's absurd um, and to take action on something like this that there is no evidence. I don't put it past somebody like Kavanaugh, who has been, you know, power hungry his entire life, clearly, to have done something like this. Like, I mean, look at look at all of the stuff that came out from like the WikiLeaks and stuff like that, or like the Anthony Weiner stuff. Like, these people are not the same as you and me. They're not regular human beings. They're sociopaths. They're disgusting human beings. There are some okay ones thrown in there, but for the most part, they are violent, statist warmongers. And Kavanaugh mm-hmm. served under the Bush administration, which is one of the worst. So I don't think he's a good person. I don't buy the you know the bs of his wife crying because if she's been sleeping with him and in a close relationship with him for the last you know 20 some odd years or whatever she knows that he's an evil person and she's probably an evil person like now is it possible that like somehow a good guy got through maybe but somebody who is like this egregious egregious on the fourth amendment i don't think is a good person this is somebody who oversaw and signed off on people being arrested by the CIA and thrown into dark holes where they would never be seen again. And he sleeps, you know, okay at night, it seems. Apparently. Yeah. And so I don't think he's a good person. And I think his actions have shown that. And, but anyways, sort of to rein this back in, I don't want to go off on a Kavanaugh thing, um, that this is showing the divide. And one of the concerns that some of the more moderate leftists were having was that by bringing this kind of evidence-based accusation up and creating a big stink in the Senate about it, that it's going to polarize moderates. And Malice says the moderates are already polarized, and they're polarized right. And that's why you guys are going to lose again to Trump or whoever Trump decides to choose as his successor if he chooses not to run because uh-huh. you have marginalized yourselves and you're not going to like what comes out on the right. Yeah, I think this is a... Like you said, a good place to end, yeah. and I think a good thing to ponder. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's do our plugs again, and also I want to I want to plug um, just because we mentioned it. Yeah. Um, You're welcome with Michael Malice, uh, which is I think from Gas Digital. Uh, also, we uh, mentioned the Fagcast, which I've been listening to lately. It's got uh, Bird Arcus and Car Car Campit on Twitter. Um, they're both pretty cool guys. I've been interacting with them a lot. Um, Mance Raider had a really good episode recently. Uh, it was called something like uh, uh, Can Christians Be Anarchists? And it was with, uh, I think his name is Christian Anarchist on Twitter. Um, but interesting guy, really interesting conversation. I think it's, it's probably more to my liking than to yours, Mason, but uh, you might you might just be interested in it in general. It had a lot of Bible talk, um, and that's, you know, that's my wheelhouse. Uh, I mean, you and I talk about it, but it, in a different way. Uh, but... Um, so, you know, those guys are both pretty cool, uh, or all of those podcasts. Um, so oh, the bad guys are friends against government. That's yeah, the, yeah, friends against the, government, and they yeah. they have a lot of stuff going on. I'm going to try to get together with Car Campit um, here because he's he's I think I think he's in Fort Worth. He's local. I'm not sure where where exactly, but uh, nearby. And um, so, but go ahead and catch us on Twitter where we interact with a lot of those guys and a lot of the other Liberty podcasters. If you need content to listen to, if you're in the um, 
you know, software development, you know, group like I am, and you just can listen to podcasts all day. Uh, there's just a wealth of resources and just a lot of people with a lot of interesting perspectives, people who have been in the movement for a long time, people who are agorists, who are ANCAPs, who are left anarchists, um, you know, every Christian anarchists, all that sort of stuff. You get a lot of different, you know, tastes and flavors. Um, so just check those out. Um, so that's at Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Uh, we also have Tasting Anarchy Dot com where you can read uh, my book reviews. Mason's got some uh, decent reviews as well, and I think he has a wine review and then just a nice friend's letter that he wrote, which uh, huh. is uh, a tear jerker if you guys want to <laughs> have your tears jerked. Um, and then uh, the last but not least is if you want to email mostly me, but Mason sometimes checks it as well, uh, tastinganarchy at gmail.com where the Google will then scan it and read it and then send it to the government. Um, but I will also read it. So uh, that's uh, all the plugs I've got. You got anything else, Mason? Uh, so let's see. No, that's that's uh, pretty good for now. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Um, Storyteller Pinot Noir was the wine I drank tonight. I'll try to have a review up for that for you guys as well. Uh, I'll also try to have one up for the Kagor or Kahor uh, dessert wine. Um, maybe I'll get Victoria to kind of write that with me. Uh, and that's it for tonight. So stay free, everyone. Drink it, Oh, give me some of that slaw. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peterstown, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Port and sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilfrey at Willis Den. He wasn't selling for the American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for the other day. Wine, wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Wine for the other day. Wine for the other day.